If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, you should find that on page 968 if you're using the Bible there in the pew. Matthew chapter 5. Let us pray. Jesus is Lord. Father God, we've sung those words with great gusto. We pray that we would demonstrate that we hold fast to them as we come now and gather around your word, and particularly as we listen carefully to the words of Jesus. Help us to hear and to respond. Amen. This autumn, for a number of weeks, I'm not quite sure how many it'll take, we're going to look together at three chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and it's a part of the Bible that's very, very well known, and because it's an address, it's all one address of Jesus, and because it's an address that he gave to his disciples on a mountainside, it's commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we didn't actually spend much time looking at Matthew chapter 5, but we spent more time last week setting the scene. And in particular, we, particular, we tried to work out why we should listen to Jesus. And what we discovered there was that in Matthew chapter 4 in particular, we discovered that Jesus called to his disciples, and his call to us today is, is much the same, and the call is this. His call is, turn around your lives and come and follow me. He says, whatever way you're living, if you're living life without me, turn around and come and follow me. What we're going to find now in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is that Jesus teaches his disciples what that life that he's called them to is actually going to be like. Last week, if you remember, we also spent some time straightening out our thinking about Jesus. And I said some things that you maybe haven't heard said explicitly like that before in church. I was saying that if we really say that Jesus is Lord, and if we claim that he is God, then it has to make sense that Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. If we have any way of thinking about Jesus that doesn't have him at the very top of, of the world's intellectual leaders, then we've misunderstood Jesus. I spent a bit of time saying Jesus is the Savior of the world. I want to reaffirm that in case I'm misunderstood. But Jesus is also the wisest teacher this world has ever seen. And that's why coming and looking at passages like this becomes particularly interesting and important to us. Maybe you think I was getting a wee bit carried away last week with all of that, um, that I overdid it a bit. No, no way. Not compared to Matthew, the gospel writer. He, he just puts loads of clues and flags throughout his gospel that Jesus really is the, the smartest person who ever lived. He's got loads of signposts saying basically, listen to Jesus. Let me show you a couple of these quickly this morning. In the passage that Elmer read for us, in the very first verse, we read 
that Jesus went up onto a, mount, a mountainside and he sat down. Now, that doesn't sound very interesting, but actually that's extremely significant. In the culture of Jesus' day, when the Jewish rabbi or teacher was about to start to teach, they wouldn't stand up like I'm doing here. They sat down. So what, what Matthew's saying here basically is the teacher has sat down. The class is about to begin. So that's the first wee clue that he gives us, that Jesus is about to teach us something very significant. The second clue is actually hidden away for us a wee bit because the NIV translation that we're using isn't very good. If you have any other version of the Bible, it would probably do a better translation of this verse for us. Matthew 2 should probably read something like this. Then he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying... Matthew uses a very elaborate construction here. He uses it's three times over. He's trying to draw attention to what Jesus is about to say. He opened his mouth. He began to teach, saying... Matthew doesn't just say, Jesus said, and then go. No, he, he really wants to, to create a bit of tension here, get his, his listener interested. He's saying, listen up. Jesus, the smartest person who ever lived, the Son of God, is about to speak. And here's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, we're going to spend some time this morning, and we're only going to look at four of those short sayings of Jesus, the Beatitudes, as they're commonly known. In these, in these eight Beatitudes, Jesus gives us lesson one in living with him. Lesson one in following him. And the subject of the first lesson is very simply this. Who is welcome in the kingdom of God? It's a lesson full of surprises because as Jesus tells us who can be happy, who's welcome in the kingdom of God, we find all sorts of people mentioned whom we wouldn't normally think of as, as blessed or happy or as, as welcome in God's family, in God's presence. Let's have a look at these. First one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that, that just must come as a shock to us. If, if you aren't hearing that as a shock, then you've probably heard it too often and, and need to take a step back from it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed here, by the way, just, it means happy. 
in the Greek literature of the day, it meant happy in a sort of a, a lucky way. You know, things have worked out, you've won the lottery, that kind of happy. In the Jewish world and, and in Jesus' mind, it had a slightly different meaning. It meant a deep, deep kind of happiness, a deep inner joy. So what Jesus is saying is that there are people who have a deep inner joy. And the joy that Jesus is talking about here is the joy of people who thought that God had given up on them, only to discover that he's given them the keys of his very kingdom. So, so who's Jesus talking about here? Who's happy in this deep sense? He says, happy are the poor in spirit. Now, I'm, I'm going to have to come clean with you here. There's a wee bit of confusion. If you read commentaries on this passage, you'll find that different people say different things about who the poor in spirit are. Some people will say that it's a, a person who's down in their spirits, spiritually down, and it only adds to the confusion whenever you read a, a parallel passage. When Luke tells you of, of this same sermon of Jesus in his gospel, he says simply, blessed are the poor. So one, Matthew says the poor in spirit. Luke says the poor. Now, having studied this passage, I'm convinced that Jesus is talking about people who are actually poor. And I have a couple of reasons for thinking that. First of all, the phrase poor in spirit and the notion of, of poverty were used interchangeably in the world of Jesus' day. Those phrases didn't have an awful lot of difference between them. And I, I want you to, to help me as I show you the second. If you could turn with me very quickly to Isaiah chapter 61, page 748. Page 748. This is a passage where the prophet describes the people to whom the Messiah, the promised one of God, will come. He says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has appoint, anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and to release from, dark, from darkness the prisoners. So the Messiah is going to come to the by the way, keep your finger in that passage because we're going to flick back to it in a moment. The Messiah is going to come to the brokenhearted, to captives, to prisoners, and yes, to the poor. Now, I think one of the reasons why people shy away from that interpretation is that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jesus is saying, you're happy if you're poor. Now, most of us know that you don't need to win the lottery to be happy in life. But to go as far as to say you're happy if you're poor, that sounds, that sounds a little crazy. Now, let's read the whole verse and see why Jesus can say that. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to us as a congregation, unless we had recently studied uh, for, for quite a few weeks all about the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. Do you remember we did this in the springtime? We recognized that the overarching theme of the whole Bible is the kingdom of God. God wants his people to live under his blessing 
and his rule. So the amazing point, and this is the bit I want you to to understand and take away with you. The amazing point here is that Jesus is coming along and he's saying, blessed are the poor because all of those promises of those blessings of living life with God in the kingdom with God are theirs. He's basically saying all the promises that the prophets have been making for the last centuries are now coming true. And they're open to the very people who have nothing, nothing of this world's goods and riches, the poor. I think this still leaves us with a question. Why the poor? Is God not equally open to all people, the rich and the poor? Does, he, does Jesus not throw his invitation out to all? Well, he does. And friends, don't be, don't be confused about that. He absolutely does. But I think Jesus' point here is he's going to the very people who thought God had forgotten about them. The very people who, who appeared to be off God's list. These Galilean peasants on the hillside. And he says to them, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of God. The message translation reads something like this. It says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your tether. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. I think that captures pretty well what Jesus is saying here. Let's spend a bit of time in the, the second of these Beatitudes, but it won't take very long. We took a lot longer in the first one. I hope you still have your finger in Isaiah chapter 61. Look with me this time at verse 2. The prophet there tells us that the Messiah, when he comes, will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus is stepping onto the stage and saying, that time about which the prophet was speaking has now come to pass. I have arrived. I am bringing the kingdom of God with me. I'm making it available to all. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. By the way, I think it's important that we notice the tense of that promise. Jesus isn't saying they are comforted, as though when we begin to follow him that life suddenly sorts itself out and and there's no cause for, for mourning or distress. No, some of this must always be in the future for us. We have to hold fast to, to the promises of God's word, like, like the promise in Revelation 21. God promises that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're mourning. That, that captures how life is for you these days. Maybe you feel you've been treated unfairly. 
Maybe the weight of circumstances that you're dealing with is just more than you can bear. Perhaps you have lost the, the person or the thing you held most dear. Friends, if that's the circumstance in which you find yourselves this morning, Jesus speaks into that very situation. And he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He himself will come and pour his comfort and his love into our lives. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Turn with me one last extra reference this morning to Psalm 37 on page 564. Psalm 37 and verse 11. The first part of this psalm talks about tyrants, people who oppress God's people. And then in verse 11 it says, but the meek will inherit the land and will enjoy great peace. It speaks of a time when God is going to sort it out, get rid of the tyrants and the oppressors and allow the simple people their place once more in the land. Do you see what Jesus does here? In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, he, he quotes from Psalm 37. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Again, Jesus is saying, that time that the prophets talked about has now come because I have come. I don't know if you use the word meek at all in your everyday conversation. I certainly don't. It's, it's not a word that I use ever. Whenever I think of the word, it conjures up images of a person who's very quiet and very submissive, the kind of person who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Well, the word here means something slightly different than that. It's the same word that was translated poor in Isaiah chapter 61. So the meek that Jesus has in mind aren't so much, they're not people who shrink into the background or people who who don't assert themselves. What we have here are the people who have been disenfranchised, who have been trampled down, who have been taken advantage of by others. So, in a, in, a, in a funny way, this beatitude is saying the same thing as the first one. These people are the poor. These are people who are in such a desperate state that they have nowhere to turn to but to God. And they're blessed Despite all appearances, Jesus says, they are blessed because the kingdom can be theirs. We're almost finished. Uh, look at verse 6 there, the, the fourth of these Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now, these first four Beatitudes really have a common theme running through them, and in a sense, they stand as a group of their own. If you've been following those last three, you'll now be in a much better position to understand the fourth one. When Jesus talks about people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's talking about people who are actually hungry. They're the poor. 
and they're the meek. They're the people of his day who are struggling to put food on the table for their families. Again, if you looked up the parallel passage in Luke's gospel, you'd find there that Luke says, blessed are you that hunger now, for you will be satisfied. People who hunger for righteousness, says Jesus. This would be very, very easy for us to misunderstand. For me, reading that, probably the first thing that comes to my mind is a person who really wants to try hard to be good, who, who is trying hard to be holy, hungering for righteousness. That is not what Jesus is talking about here at all. That's important. It's something that God calls his people to, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking here about people who are waiting for justice to be done. In his context, he's talking to the Jewish peasants who've been driven from their land by power-hungry landlords. Today, I think he's talking to the, the East Asian teenager who works 14 hours a day in a sweatshop for 30p. He's talking to the middle manager who's been thrown out of his job unceremoniously after 25 years service without any chance of being re-employed. He's talking to people who hunger and thirst to see the right thing done. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The people we've met this morning in these four Beatitudes, they all have, have this in common, the poor, the mourning, the meek, and the downtrodden. All of them are entirely dissatisfied with their life as it is. They're people who are desperate to see God act. And Jesus says, they're blessed. They can be happy, deeply and meaningfully happy. Friends, I want to close for two minutes with one last question. And I think it's probably the question at the heart of all of our lives. How can we be happy? Even when you don't think you're thinking about that question, you are thinking about that question. Even when you think it's at the back of your mind, it's right at the front. It sets your agenda for every day that you live and every decision that you make. How can I be happy? And we live in a world that tells us in a million different ways, happy are those who have, who have a nice big house, who have an impressive looking car, who can afford to keep up with all the latest technologies and mobile phones, who are able to go on holiday three or four times a year to exotic climes, who have big pensions to look forward to retiring on. Happy are those who have, or to put it in the kind of terms we've been thinking about today, happy are the wealthy, the carefree, the powerful, those who get what they want when they want it, and nobody stands up to them. In the opening lines of this sermon, 
Jesus turns this all on its head. He says, blessed are the poor, those who mourn, those who are downtrodden and oppressed. Happy are the poor, says Jesus, those who have nothing great of what this world has to offer. Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are the poor. The best teacher who ever lived, the Son of God, undermines the whole of our 21st century Western worldview. Happy are the poor. Do you believe him? Let us pray. Father God, we admit that on first hearing this doesn't make an awful lot of sense to us. We're conditioned to think that our happiness consists of what we have and what we own and what we consume. And yet here you come and you say to us that the people who have none of these things can be deeply and profoundly happy. Lord, would you open our ears to hear this, our minds to understand it. And Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to following Jesus Christ. Amen.